Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of your Lit Professor's Mixtape. Um, how are you today, Ellie? Oh, Ellie. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Me, I'm fine. I am... We're going to the beach after this, so I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> it's a beautiful, hot day here, and I'm just excited to spend it by the water, eating Mike and Ike's. Excellent. I am as well. Yeah. But first, we have an excellent episode to record. Yeah, a very interesting topic that we've kind of touched on a little bit before. Uh, we touched on it when talking about art pop uh, for Lady Gaga and her relationship with R. Kelly. Uh, we've talked a little bit about it, I think, last episode when we were mentioning 6 9 mm-hmm. and his whole pedophilia conviction. Um, so what we're basically going to talk about today is, can we separate the artist from the art? That's going to be our big question. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think we have, I think what we're actually dealing with here is two separate questions, and one is, is can we separate the artist from the art? Mm-hmm. And the other is, should we? Right. If we can, should we? Right, right, right. I'm kind of honestly not excited for this episode because I think we're going to bring up more questions and answers. Right. I'm hoping we can come to some solid conclusions, but I don't know how it's going to go because I feel like there's a lot of things that we can't really know totally i mean it's it is really this episode is probably going to be more philosophical than other episodes just Mm -hmm. because this is a moral question and um but it's not a clear moral question it's not like is shooting someone bad yeah Um, which and even that i mean is not always the clearest thing so Mm -hmm. when we're dealing with moral questions things get complicated but we're gonna do our best to uh to give you enough information to, I guess, make your own decision. Yeah. I feel like we're going to be airing some dirty laundry, bringing up some <laughs> things the audience may mm. not know about. Mm-hmm. This is probably true. Didn't know we were turning into a gossip podcast, but... <laughs> Girl, we love the gossip. I know we love the about? gossip. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Okay. Um, so I think where we want to start, actually, is a discussion on cultural appropriation. Absolutely. Um, so if, to start with that, I think we can approach cultural appropriation using theory... Mm-hmm. to attempt to give us an answer um, concerning the aesthetic implications of artists and art. That's where I'd like to start, at least. Okay. I do worry that theory might be a bit too impersonal. I understand that this is like a, definitely a very touchy subject for a lot of people, especially those whose culture is being appropriated. Yeah. But I think theory is still a good starting point, so just a disclaimer, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start by sharing something from a philosopher named Jeanette Bicknell who talks about music performance. And basically, Bicknell's idea is that, you know, once you've experienced an artwork like a poem, you feel like you've experienced the whole thing. So also something like a painting, you don't feel like you need to see a painting painted, a poem read, to feel like you've actually experienced the whole thing. But it's not the same with music. If you haven't seen it performed live, you really feel like you haven't completely experienced it. And I think the same can be said for a play. Reading the script is not the full thing. And sound poetry, if you read sound poetry, it's um, not at all. It's very incoherent. Right. You need to see it performed. So therefore, songs involve these two elements, composition and performance. Mm-hmm. So what Bicknell is asking us is which kinds of people can sing which kinds of songs with successful results. Mm-hmm. So I think what Bicknell is saying is that actually we can't separate the artist from their art. Certain kinds of people um, can sing certain kinds of songs, and uh, that she's making an aesthetic argument actually is that just for aesthetic purposes alone, there are certain people who shouldn't sing certain things. And we can sort of figure out who should be singing what by talking about 
artists' public personas, I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, like, what do you think makes up an artist's public persona? Gosh. Well, I think attitude is a big part. Mm-hmm. Um, appearance, as in how they choose to dress themselves or style themselves, is a big identifier as well. Yeah. Um, and I also think things like their social media presence, like on Twitter and Instagram, like nowadays that's really important, especially Twitter. Mm-hmm. Especially Twitter, because that's, it seems more personal, like it seems like they're really saying what's on their mind when it comes to Twitter, so I feel like that is being used to hold people accountable for quite a few things. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, like, you hit on everything. Those are all what, um, things that make up someone's public persona. Other things are gender race, age. Oh, sure, sure. Um, so we can actually, what Bicknell thinks is that we can actually sort of like divide these public personas into three different types. So one would be like the transparent persona. Someone like Cat Power, Kurt Cobain, or like what you see is what you get. Yep. You know what you're getting. Um, the second one is the clear, clearly performative persona. Can you name it? Clearly performative persona? <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to ask me about drag queens? Because that's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> that's, an, actually, that's an excellent one, yeah. yeah definitely yeah, yeah. clearly performative. Clearly, yeah. Someone, uh, another example is like Lady Gaga, Madonna, oh, yes, those yes. kinds of people as well. Mm-hmm. And then we have the reclusive persona. Oh. So we don't really know a lot about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I had trouble thinking of an example of this one. I think maybe Lord mm. would be interesting, because I know she likes to keep her private life very private. Right. Despite the fact that we know bits about it <laughs> yeah lord that's interesting i feel she might even fall in between like transparent and reclusive at the same time yeah kind of and like performative yeah yeah lord. Yeah, yeah yeah so i mean yeah obviously these are not like distinct categories but mm-hmm. i think you can sort of use them as defining characteristics mm-hmm. so then the question is like when is a vocal performance aesthetically unsuccessful and what bicknell says and i quote she says the public persona it's when the public persona of the singer inhibits the successful communication of whatever is crucial in the song such that the audience fails to be convinced. Oh, shit. So, example was, like, if Justin Bieber was singing Landslide. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Or, like, Jay-Z was singing, like, Run the World Girls. Oh, my God. Like, can you imagine? Like, it wouldn't work, right? Yeah, not at all. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Those are really extreme examples, but Mm -hmm. I think we're going to get more into, like, cultural appropriation when that doesn't... Sure. When that interferes. Mm -hmm. So, basically, you know, when the singer's public persona is too incongruous with something essential, it distracts the audience, which diminishes the pleasure of the performance, and so reduces its aesthetic value. Oh, man. Yes. That's great. So, we're kind of touching on, like, authenticity, Absolutely. And stuff like yeah. that. Okay, okay, interesting. So I think the whole cultural appropriation debate is hard for us to talk about, mm. being two white girls. This is true. So the best we can do, I'm going to just put this out there, is kind of step back and listen to what other people are saying, specifically, you know, people of color, mm-hmm. um, to help form our own opinions. Or is it something that we shouldn't even have an opinion on? It's like men commenting on abortion rights. Mm. You know? I, I, I don't know. So right. I, I'm going off of what other people have said as far as this, when it comes to this debate. Because I don't feel comfortable forming my own hard opinions on things. Good, good comment. I would agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I know you want to talk about white rappers. <laughs> In regards to this, I do. actually, I spent a lot of time thinking about this today, because 
there are there are some white rappers, people like Eminem, who have street cred. Mm. You know, like a lot of people like him. People aren't coming at him being like, oh, this is cultural appropriation. Or maybe they were, but that was just kind of an old debate because I think he's really kind of earned his way as a rapper. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that too. Are yeah. you? Yeah. But then there's people like Iggy Azalea who people just try <laughs> and discredit over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I personally don't like her. I'm not a fan of her music, but if people can accept Eminem as a white rapper, like where do we draw the line, right? Right. I think, I think we actually can. Oh. Draw the line, mm-hmm. but I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let you finish. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I, well, I want to talk a little bit about actually uh, the blues as well. Okay, okay. I have a really good starting point for us then. Do you? Okay. Yeah. So I'm gonna bring up another philosopher. Okay. This guy's name is Joel Rudenow, and actually, what he asked in his in his article in his philosophical paper was who ha- who can sing the blues? Yes. And I think we can actually expand this now to rap. Mm-hmm. Um, the blues and rap are, are sort of similar. Um, so, like, sure, white people or other, you know, non-black people can sing the blues. Like, it's not a question of if they have the, you know, they can, sure. But, but the question is really, should they? Um, and who has the right credentials? So, it's the idea of, of ownership versus understanding. Mm-hmm. Who gets it, right? Yes. I think we're, we're speaking from the same source because I actually sat in on this philosophy lecture that you were in. It was, your, oh. it was your class. It was your class, and yeah. I sat in to listen. Oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> so I think we're going to kind of merge. Oh, excellent. Merge thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, remember... Are you going to talk about Eric Clapton? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, well so I, telepathy. Because I, I remember exactly what your professor was saying about him. Yeah, this was an excellent lecture. It was very good. It okay, was well, really you, good. Okay, you, you go ahead. Let's, yeah, we can do this together. So um, when talking about white rappers, it's the same as what your professor was saying about blues music. Um it's a genre created by black people, by slaves in the South. So can white people sing the blues if it's inherently about the tragedy of slavery? Can a white person do it justice mm-hmm. is the question. Um, and then what your professor brought up is maybe if said white man has experienced tragedy himself, and the example was Eric Clapton, who had his uh, four-year-old son die in in accident yeah extremely tragic accident. extremely fell tragic. out of the 51st floor of a friend's apartment window. right yeah right so then what level of tragedy is acceptable how tragic does an event have to be in order to allow someone to sing the blues you know it's just odd how do mm-hmm. we draw that line yeah I, yeah it's a very arbitrary line but i feel like you sort of just know and i mean maybe it's i'm not in the place to say like yes or no but those who are in the right place to say that, I guess, you know, they would just know. Like, if the if the blues community accepted someone like Eric Clapton into the community, well, then obviously they felt he had the credentials mm-hmm. to sing that. Right. So it's like Eminem. It's exactly like Eminem. Yeah. Hmm. So what Rudenow, so the the philosopher that we got this from is Rudenow. Um, what he says, his argument is that he calls it the experiential access argument. Basically, and I quote. The experiential access argument, in effect, posits the experience of a black person in America as a precondition of the felt emotion essential to authentic expression in the idiom of the blues. Mm-hmm. We can extend that to rap. But I, I, I do think Rudenow might say, well, the experiential access maybe is not exclusive to black people. Maybe in very rare instances, it can be extended to other, other, um, other races. Interesting. But I'm not sure. Yeah. I think that's just one way of sort of 
maybe explaining when certain instances are okay, like having Eminem as a white rapper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So certain spe- certain experiences can qualify you to sing rapper the blues, and yeah. other experiences would not. Right. Like I mean, definitely you and I, just knowing our histories, like our according to Rude now, do not have the experiential. Um, access I guess to sing to rap or to sing the blues does someone like Iggy Azalea have that right I don't think so (laughs) but (laughs) no money no family whatever alone in the middle of Miami (laughs) I don't is that an Iggy Azalea quote yeah damn I don't even know that what you don't even you said I don't even like it I know where'd that come from all right um you know an argument people might raise against this is that well most black people in America today have never experienced slavery firsthand. Um, and I think that argument falls short because even if individuals haven't experienced these things directly, they live in the collective unconscious and inherited memory of certain cultural groups. So um, it's sort of like the Holocaust does for Jews and Germans. It doesn't, it's not just, it doesn't just go away and we deal with the repercussions of these events mm-hmm. um, every day. Yeah, no, they're still living in a racist society. Totally. In a society founded on slavery. Right? Yeah. And if you watch a documentary like um, 13th by Ava DuVernay, which is on Netflix, is very excellent. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that would argue um, many black people are still enslaved in America and we just don't call it slavery anymore. But the, the way the system is set up is, uh, it's awful. So... But if you're Kanye West, you don't believe that. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or if you're some black commentator on Fox News. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Very rare. But See, that's odd because part of me is like, I have to get my sources from black people because I've never experienced racism. Mm-hmm. But then you've got black people like Kanye West who's like, oh, slavery was a choice. And I'm like, wait. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. A black Fox News I know. Yeah. Right? So I'm like, uh, this is obviously something that I am very confused about. Yeah. And I don't know where to get my information now. <laughs> I know. It's, it's definitely confusing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's a difficult uh, discussion for I think anyone to have, but mm-hmm. especially for us. Yeah. Um, so that's why I'm I think we're both trying to approach this more from like an aesthetic sort of way, and that like what are the aesthetic pitfalls of a white person rapping or like Justin Bieber singing landslide? Like just <laughs> aesthetically, that might not might not be coherent, might not result in a coherent performance. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, do you have... I have another thing, or do you want to... I have another thing. Yeah, okay, you cultural go. appropriation. Please. Um, this is a total kind of swing, so I don't know. Uh, I want to talk about, actually, the 2018 Met Gala. Okay. Because that was kind of controversial, because people are saying, oh, this is appropriation, you know? You're kind of sexualizing your religion, or you're kind of uh, minimizing it to just as it's said to its aesthetic values, right? Like, my religion is not your costume, right? That's what people are throwing out, or we're right, throwing out. Right, right. so to, just to clarify, mm-hmm. the theme of the 2018 Met Gala oh, yes. was... Heavenly Bodies. Exactly. And it was uh, based off of imagery from Catholicism. And, yes. Yeah. Um, throwing it out there, I myself am Catholic and do not mind. In fact, I thought it was fucking dope. <laughs> Met Gala the theme this year, amazing. So when are we gonna get to see Zendaya in like chainmail armor again? Hopefully soon. But I was living for it. It was my phone Hopefully background. It's not the, for, like, it's can confirm. It was my phone background for a couple months. Um, this isn't. This is not cultural appropriation, mm. and I think it's shitty that people are trying to label it that way. 
Like, the Vatican fully condoned it. They, like, you know, the chairs, um, Amal Clooney and Donatella Versace, even consulted with a cardinal at the Vatican before finalizing things. There were priests who were honored guests at the event as well. The, like, the Vatican even lent out artifacts and garments for them to put on display. Like, right. it can't be cultural appropriation if the culture in question is basically sponsoring the event. Mm-hmm. It would be appropriation if the culture didn't consent to or participate in what was going on. But in this case, it was full on, you know, yeah, you've got my blessing, literally. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I think it was supposed to be a celebration of the Catholic Church's aesthetic, and I think that was a success. Um, but, and my only but, I understand if someone is unhappy with, like, the sexualization of Catholic imagery because mm. of all the sex crimes the church has committed and tried to cover up. Right. That I understand, mm-hmm. sure. Um, people were unhappy when Madonna did it in the 80s. People were unhappy with Gaga when she did it and Born This Way. So I'm sure there are going to be people who are unhappy with it, right. who were unhappy with it as far as the Met Gala. Fine. I understand. Mm-hmm. But the event was basically just to appreciate the aesthetic value of the catholic church and i think that was very successful yeah i would i would absolutely agree with that yeah i think if if a culture is saying this is okay like we appreciate that you are um exploring our history and our culture and doing so in a very interesting way and like if it comes from the top down like Mm -hmm. or or whatever if if it is approved like i I don't know. I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, it was a collaboration. Yeah, you know, exactly. The Catholic Church was willingly like, this is a great idea. Here, we're totally for it. Take all these artifacts that we have to put on display, right? Yeah. Like, if it was the opposite, if they were saying, like, no, we're not quite sure about this, then you, there's they a problem. Have, yeah. But they were fully for it. Yeah. It's not an issue. No. It's not cultural appropriation. End of story. No, and we, and we definitely do need to, like, sometimes take a step back and realize, well, we do need to appreciate other people's cultures. And, like, mm-hmm. to do so, we have to sort of share in the culture. And there are ways to go about doing that that are totally acceptable. And so yep. we shouldn't just, like, step back and be like, no, I'm afraid of, like, even attempting to get to know another culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, I don't think that's the right response. Well, it's like, you know, eating the food of another culture or learning another language is an appropriation because those things have been shared by right. people of that culture. Like, if someone's opening up a sushi shop in Toronto, they want us to eat their sushi. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, they, we've got their approval. It's a big thumbs up, go ahead, do mm-hmm. it. Right? Exactly. But there are instances where it's like, if black people are saying, like, well, white people shouldn't have dreadlocks or anyone who isn't black shouldn't have dreadlocks. Yeah. Then we should listen to that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, um, actually, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into that. I have I have an idea uh, or a philosopher, another philosopher, my mm-hmm. last philosopher, James mm-hmm. Young, who gets into this. And so we're trying we're trying to talk about like morality now. Mm-hmm. And what what James Young said is that we should av- avoid causing profound moral offense. So something like. Sushi is like fine because it's like okay, oh well, I I'm opening a business and like I want you to eat at my place and uh, that's how I'm gonna make money and so I'm inviting you in. But if a culture is saying like no, this is of importance to us and you are causing us profound moral offense by doing so, then we should respect that. Um, profound offense, just to define it as as James Young defines it, it strikes at a person's core values or sense of self. Mm-hmm. An example of something that is a moral pitfall and might even cause profound moral offense um, would be white covers of formation. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I sent this to you, and it's uh-huh. maybe one of the worst things I've ever seen on the internet. Yep, I hate it. Um, I'm going to reference it here so that you can see it, as in just to see how offensive something can be. It's by Johnny Heatherington on YouTube. If you just look up that, or if you just look up white formation cover on YouTube, <laughs> it will come up. Oh, my gosh. And it's just this white guy singing Beyonce's formation in a really weird, dramatic, slow way on the piano. And he says, like, it just is like, it's both an aesthetic pitfall. Like, Jeanette Bicknell would be like, well, this is like Justin Bieber singing Landslide. It does not work. Um, But it's also just, I think you could call it something that is, like, morally offensive. Just to pretend like you understand the song. And I'm just erasing all of its significance. No, for sure. So what Young says is that causing profound moral offense is simply wrong unless it is outweighed by other considerations. And this is where things get like really tricky and I'm not sure I agree with this, but I'm gonna share it anyways, just as an idea. Mm-hmm. So you can cause profound offense if the social value of the artwork outweighs the offense. This is really difficult. I, I'm, I'm like, Young, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to determine social value. like. You know, some people might be like, okay, well, you know, blackface is, like, really socially valuable to me. And I'm like, okay, I don't, like, no. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how, I don't know how you get around this. But a, a more, I guess, easier example is, like, The Merchant of Venice. Ah. So someone might say, um, the social value of this play by Shakespeare outweighs uh, the negative representation towards Jews that the, the artwork has within it. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think I would agree with that as a Jewish person, but you know, I don't, I, it's, it's still sort of shaky ground. Yeah. Second thing that might outweigh profound moral offense, according to Young, is the artist's freedom of expression. Mm. And this is where things get tricky. Yep. So Young says, even if work isn't all that valuable, it might still be okay to engage in cultural appropriative artwork as a means of artistic expression. So do you know the artwork Piss Christ? No. Heard of that? It's like this artist just basically peed on religious iconography. Oh. Um, which was extremely offensive to a lot of Christians. But a lot of some people were like, oh, it's his, it's his right. It's his freedom of expression. You know, I don't know. It's very, it's very yeah, unclear. Odd. And then on the other hand, Young will be like, okay, but you know, some things are definitely not okay. And like, Nazis are definitely not okay. And I hope we can, or everyone listening to this podcast can like, agree. agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I just, I'm just really confused by Young's argument. Because like, he's like, on one hand, Nazis are not great. But like, peeing on, um, like, Christ on the cross, like, those, that iconography is fine. Mm. I'm like, it's not super clear. Yeah. And I think this just sort of emphasizes how difficult this discussion is. And unclear this discussion can be to have. Right. So, uh... Well, it's interesting. That's it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, boiling down some debates we have today, um, people will be like, well, I can use slurs because it's freedom of speech. And it's like, well, yeah, sure, freedom of speech, but it's an asshole move. You know, like, it, it's not going to stop me from, like, slapping you across the face for right. calling me <laughs> a bad word, right? Mm-hmm. It's freedom of speech, but I guess not freedom from consequences. Mm. So, I don't, I don't know. It's odd, because, you know, you'll have, like, people, like, white people saying the N-word. It's like, oh, it's my freedom of speech. Or using, you know, racial slurs or homophobic slurs, and they're, they're trying to justify it by saying, like, oh, it's a free country, I can say whatever I want. 
It's like, well, yeah, but you're, it's harassment. You can be fined for that. You can be, you know, beat up for it, hopefully, if you're <laughs> doing something like that, right? Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird line to draw again. It really, it really is. It's a difficult line. And you can't, you know, stop people from saying these things because it, it is their freedom of speech. And mm-hmm. to impose a law that prevents people from saying certain words is, is just a very slippery slope, I think, to go down. But hopefully we can get to a point where just within each of us, our moral, our like own morality tells us that if we are causing profound moral offense to another person or another group of people without, or just, I think just simply that, if we are causing profound moral offense to another person or group of people, we shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, there are instances where like offensive artwork or artwork that challenges our, our view of the world is important. And like, it can be helpful to see art and be offended by it and wonder why you're offended by it but there's definitely a time and a place for that and I think maybe maybe like an art gallery is like you know you're coming to the art gallery to see something like that maybe there's a disclaimer ahead of time um but again I I I, you know yeah well I mean this isn't exactly the same but going back to the Met Gala having Rihanna dressed as like this Margiela Pope right you know, it's subversive because you have this black woman mm-hmm. as a white male leader, right? That's interesting. Some people might see that as offensive because they're like, oh, the Pope is a man's job. Yeah. But it's interesting to see. Exactly. Right? Well, also, also, uh, Margiela is now run by John Galliano, who was oh. arrested on charges of anti-Semitism. Yes, that's correct. Right? Isn't mm. that odd? See, that's and that's the other thing about, like, why music is different from from other things is that like even if we disagree with hopefully we disagree with John Galliano and his anti-semitism but like for some reason it's sort of okay for us to still wear those designs because we don't associate like there's not this coherency between the artist and their designs Mm -hmm. the designer and their and their fashion Mm -hmm. there is but it's not like a music performance yeah odd yeah very slippery yeah so can we Do we blame Rihanna for wearing a Margiela piece? Right, like... You know, if, if considering his history, his very public, uh, you know, anti-Semitic remarks. I know, I mean, I, there's a part of me that's like, that's definitely, that's definitely not okay. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's a really beautiful it's outfit, gorgeous. right? Yeah, so and this is excuse him, right? Yeah, this is where things get really complicated for yeah. us. So I want to talk a little bit more about um, our culture of canceling, and I put that in quotation mark, canceling yeah. celebrities. Yeah, go for it. Um, this has been a huge kind of debate over the years. I feel like it's just blown up and taken off because of things like social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I first kind of encountered the question. In 2009, when the story about uh, Chris Brown assaulting Rihanna came into light, um, the question at the time for my little prepubescent brain was more, (laughs) can I still bear to listen to his music if I know he's a bad person? And I think that's still the question today. It's a bit more refined nowadays. Um, For this case specifically, Chris Brown has repeatedly apologized, but does that mean anything? Can we believe him? Right. What do you think? Oh, this is this is the like prime example, right? Oh uh, yeah, I mm-hmm. think for at least for our generation, for those of us who listen to pop music. Yep. Oh, I struggle so much with it. I don't want to forgive him because of some. I think there are many reasons. I'm a woman. I really like Rihanna, and I think just on my basic moral principle, I think that's a really evil thing to do. Mm-hmm. 
but at the same time there's a part of me that wants to believe that people can change and I, I, I don't want to believe that that people can't change right and so how do we how do we go about address how do we yeah, what do we do with that? Right. Well, he has repeatedly apologized, but there are other instances, like afterwards, of him being violent. Like there was a, a case of him um, throwing something out a hotel window in an attempt to shatter it, mm. uh, threatening a woman with a gun in his house, and also hitting a woman at a party back in 2016. Mm. So this isn't a one-off kind of thing. No. You know, he's got a history of aggression and violence, even after you know his domestic abuse charges came to light. So obviously he hasn't changed. Right. And he's, despite him apologizing, I don't think we can believe him because he's still acting out. He's still being aggressive towards women specifically. Yeah. So I don't, I, he's still canceled for me. Oh, he's, he's canceled for <laughs> he's me canceled. as well. He's Absolutely. canceled. I can't bear to listen to his music. Like I, I really I can't. I know. But listen, right. I, I, I told you I was going to bring this up. Oh. Um, synesthesia moment. Oh. Synesthesia moment, everyone. His song, Look At Me Now, you know that one? Yeah, right. It's maybe like top five most beautiful synesthesia songs for me. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. I haven't listened to it in quite some time, just because, Mm -hmm. but it's just like, it's just totally different for me. Right? So I have, I don't know what to say. I know, I know. know. So in one case, it's like, I can totally bear to listen to this music because it's a weird experience for me. It's really uh, artistically interesting. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I can't bear to listen to his music because I know who he is and I know what he's done and I can't forgive him. So. Yeah. I don't know. Definitely not not an easy one. Yeah. Well, another question I want to kind of bring up, we've kind of touched on it already, is um is one crime worse than another and are we the ones who can judge that mm. like can we hold Winona Ryder who was caught shoplifting to the same standards as someone like her ex-husband Johnny Depp who was physically abusive towards Amber Heard okay well like let's you know there's definitely a difference between shoplifting and beating someone up right but how do we decide like I think <laughs> there's definitely a difference inherently yeah but without context like how are we really to know you know what I'm saying? Well, I, I do. Yeah. I do, but I, I don't know. I think there's... There's definitely... No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, in this you case know, specifically, like, there's definitely yeah. a discrepancy. Yeah. But who... Yeah. I don't know. It's still kind of up in the air. Fun fact, um, the same attorney that represented Winona Ryder in her trial also represented Chris Brown in his trial with Rihanna. Interesting. Yeah. Some famous celebrity attorney. I forget mm. his name. Maybe that'll be me one day, but I don't want to represent <laughs> Johnny Depp. So, no. Winona Ryder, not Johnny Depp. Oh, didn't represent... Oh, sorry, Chris Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, is it up to us, the public, to judge the severity of their crimes, uh, to decide who should be cancelled, and should we be allowed that power? I would, I would actually say yes to all of the above. Mm-hmm. I think um, if, we, if we, like, make a metaphor, if we extend, make a metaphor to the legal system in, in really difficult situations, um, it's often left up to the public, the jury, to decide who is guilty or who is culpable or, or whatnot. And so mm-hmm. why should it be any different for celebrities? I, I, I don't think it should be. And I think, um, you know, celeb- being a celebrity is, is a difficult thing. I understand that. And you have to be favorable in the eyes of the public to continue to do your job. But we idolize these people. We look up to them for guidance. For, we model our lives off of them. Um, and so we should hold them to high standards. I think it's just like our political leaders. Um, 
we you know I was thinking about this I was thinking how we call someone like Nicki Minaj like queen mm-hmm. or like like goddess or like and we have these really these terms that have a lot of weight to them we apply them to the to our celebrities and in one sense that makes it difficult for us to cancel them because we do idolize them so much but on the other hand it's like well if we're gonna be calling someone queen like shouldn't they embody all the qualities that we think a queen should have Mm -hmm. and if they don't I think we need to question that and we need to challenge them and ask them to change and if they don't meet our standards like we have to make that difficult decision to um it's like to not vote them back in right that's what we do with our leader our political leaders yeah yeah but again it's like some people won't forgive certain crimes and other people will forgive certain crimes so for certain people an artist can be canceled but chris brown still has female fans you know what i'm saying like (laughs) i I think at this point the majority of people have demonized him Mm -hmm. chris brown but at the same time there are still people who love him there are and i think what what i would just say to other people who are wondering about how to approach this topic of artists and art is that i definitely think we should be considering where our art comes from as much as we consider where we get our food um, where our clothes come from there's no reason that this is any different like yeah if you want things to change in other aspects of your life like if you wouldn't if you don't think domestic violence is right in any sense and if you wouldn't want that happening in your family then you should extend that to the art that you consume and what you support right it's like if you you know I'm not a vegetarian but like if you really care about either being well okay this is a bad example now I feel like I should be a vegetarian but like (laughs) you really care about the environment you really care about animal rights and like Mm -hmm. animal ethics like you definitely you should probably be a vegetarian Mm -hmm. or at least be thinking about ways that you can reduce your impact on those things and same with our clothes that's been a recent thing it's like where do our clothes come from are they coming from factories where child children are working or where people are dying and they're not paid very well like I think we should be thinking about that in all aspects of our life right so I want to bring up one last point of theory okay. um, by two authors named Wimsat and Beardsley. Okay. Uh, two philosophers in the world post-World War II, they wrote an essay called The Intentional Fallacy, where they talk about how authorial intent does not really matter. And I got two quotes from this essay that I'd like to read. Okay. Um, they believe, and I quote, the design or intention of the author is neither available nor desirable as a standard for judging the success of a work of, of literary art. And the second is a bit more interesting. They say, um, the poem is not the critic's own and not the author's. It is detached from the author at birth and goes about the world beyond his power to intend about it or control it. The poem belongs to the public. It is embodied in language, the peculiar possession of the public, and it is about the human being, an object of public knowledge. So extending this to what we're talking about with uh, musicians and songwriters, Um, after a song is released it no longer belongs to the singer they deliver it to the public and it becomes severed from the artist Mm. so their Wimsat and Beardsley aren't exactly saying the same things we are but they are creating that divide they're saying that once art is released into the world it does not belong to the artist anymore Mm. the artist has no control over it um so I know what they're really intending here to say is once a poem or song is released its audience can place its own value on it and gain its own meaning from it um, the meaning that's not necessarily what the artist intended. Um, but what I think is important to consider is the divide itself that's created once the poem has been born. So I guess according to Wimsat and Beardsley, the public is the one who is allowed to judge art and perhaps find it worthy to listen to, even if the artist is rotten. 
It's the word I used. So. <laughs> Something rotten this week. Something rotten. Something rotten in the state of Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I, yeah. I th- and I think that what you just said is exactly what a lot of people would, would give as their reason maybe for um, consuming certain artworks by problematic people. Right. Right. So I think if we're to come to one conclusion, we can say that we as an audience have a lot of power when it comes to the art we consume. And with that power comes responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think despite what people say, where uh, some people say listening to an artist's music is directly supporting them. So we should be holding them accountable for their wrongdoings and cutting them off in quotes when they're beyond forgiveness. Mm. And I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is every everyone has to sort of ask themselves, you know, does the do the moral pitfalls of this problem? I know that the artwork I'm consuming is, is problematic. Do the moral pitfalls outweigh whatever social value I'm getting from it? And I get that maybe you really love a Chris Brown song, and it's really difficult for you to give that up. But it definitely has to be a moment of reflection and introspection, and even if you decide to continue listening to that song maybe just that process of like questioning and wondering and acknowledging that this is problematic is still productive and so I would like encourage people to still do that and not just pretend like this didn't happen and like I'm just gonna whatever I'm gonna separate I'm just gonna keep it completely separate right I think that's a nice idea and I wish things worked like that but I you know in reality they definitely they don't they don't yeah. yeah, people are willing to forgive Chris Brown mm-hmm. for the things he's done, right? Yeah. So I guess that's another thing is our tolerance. We're willing to forgive. Right, and we and we do need to remember that, like, people... I, I, do, I do think people can change, and I want... If people have done something bad, that they can... They have a punishment, but then that they can be forgiven and they can grow. And so we should also, I think, be open to seeing... To having people grow and, and to receiving them back into the world. And, if they've changed. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's definitely going to take time, and we're going to have to figure out how we judge that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a complicated topic. And, I know. And we didn't tough. really we didn't totally stick to music in this episode. We mm-hmm. we talked about a lot of other art, but like that's yeah. just because this is something the art world has to deal with, mm-hmm. and especially lately, like we've definitely had a lot more instances of like, oh, this artist is actually like you know, not so great. They were, like, they murdered someone, but we forgave them because their art was... Like, Caravaggio, mm-hmm. the painter, actually, like, murdered someone, like, 300 years ago. Shit. But we're like, whatever, it was, like, 300 years ago. And it's, like, <laughs> kind of... It's like, oh, interesting. He murdered someone. Like, we're like, oh, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But it's like, okay, wait, like, man, eh, maybe it's not, like, so great. You oh, know? that's hilarious. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So definitely, definitely a complicated topic. And yeah. There's no right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Anyway, stream Ariana Grande's new album, Sweetener. <laughs> oh my god, what? Unproblematic fame. Where did fame. that come from? <laughs> she once licked a donut, but she's apologized. So. <laughs> oh true, I forgot about that. I know. I wonder who ate that donut. Sorry? I wonder who ate that donut. Who ended up who eating? Girl? Who ended up eating the licked Ariana Grande donut? Was that uh, at a 7-Eleven? I don't know. Or like a Dunkin' Donuts? Maybe we should, we should find them. Give them a medal. They'd probably be like really happy to know that, actually. Yeah, that's true. They can, like, tell their, their friends all that story. <laughs> I ate the donut Ariana Grande licked. Oh, my gosh. Damn. 
All right, I think we might leave this here. I think so. <laughs> I think we've done enough uh, contemplating for a day. Yeah, we we would appreciate hearing your opinions and your thoughts. So if yeah. you have any comments, suggestions, whatever, negative, positive, like please send them our way and uh, keep this discussion going. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Who have you canceled recently? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has someone. <laughs> Everyone has someone. Let us know. Yeah. I recently um, reaccepted Azalea Banks into my life. Okay. She's problematic. Yeah. Like she has said, oh my gosh, she has said some shit on Twitter. <laughs> oh my gosh. She certainly has. She's also been caught sacrificing chickens in one of her closets, like ritual sacrifices. Was that what she was doing at Elon Musk's house? God, no, who knows? <laughs> he was just tripping acid the entire time. Where was Grimes? Like, this is literally, oh, I, I'm like, knows? this is so entertaining who to knows? me. I'm like, did you see his tweets? It's like Tesla booty shorts coming out. <laughs> I did not. Okay, so no. people need to get off Twitter, and like the oh. three of them need to get off Twitter. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Anyway, anyway, we'll sign off for now. We're going to go to the beach and just like forget all of us. <laughs> all of this. Yeah. Unproblematic faves. That's we are, right. So far. All right, well, uh, we'll see you next episode. Yes, and I think we're going to continue this topic a little bit. A little bit, yeah. In regards to Beyonce's Lemonade. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be a big one. Episode 10? Yes, episode 10. Yes, yes. So we're going to make it a good one. Yeah. Okay, see you next time. Bye.